This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Joey Ayoub. He is a Lebanese writer, researcher, activist. He does all sorts of stuff. Very interesting guy. Today he's going to be speaking to us about the dire situation in Lebanon. You might remember last year there were serious clashes against the government. The government has just been messing about. There's corruption all over the place. Things have not gotten any better. In fact, it's got a lot worse. Joey is going to be explaining to us how Lebanon is fast becoming a powder keg once more. If you like what we're doing, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. Uh, we last spoke, I think, like just over a year ago now. Um, you know, the situation was pretty bad in Lebanon. I understand not a lot has changed for the better. Um, and I have seen recently, within the last month or so, there have been kind of renewed clashes, renewed protests. Uh, maybe just give us an idea of, you know, what the most immediate situation is right now uh, for the people of Lebanon. Okay, well, um, not entirely sure where to start, to be honest. Um, <laughs> well, one thing, again, I mean, I was listening to our conversation back then. It was like during the uprising and I think Hariri had just resigned as prime minister. Uh, and I remember telling you, basically, like, I don't actually know if he's really gone. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, as we're talking now, he is in line to reform government um there's basically it's basically like you know a great powers game but on a tiny tiny scale like on just on lebanon scale where they're all just fighting for power and in the meantime uh the economy has completely tanked the currency has basically lost something like 85 percent of its value since uh, the crisis started so uh to give some kind of um i don't know some kind of equivalent uh, I think at its worst, I think now it's slightly better, but it's only only by by a bit. But like before the crisis started, the Lebanese lira or the Lebanese pound was fifteen hundred to the dollar, and at some point it got up to fifteen thousand. Um, and so a good example that I sometimes use, I have I have a relative who is working three jobs, uh, you know, late twenties, degree in interior architecture, pretty middle class by previous standards. And with those three jobs, she's making the equivalent of $250 a month. With three jobs combined? Yeah, 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 with three jobs combined. And that went, went down uh, during the worst day where there was a really a, a kind of a, a very quick depreciation of the salary. That went down from $250 to $217. And then it went up slightly much, but I don't think that, that much. I don't think it went back up to $250. So like it's pretty pretty extreme and it's pretty severe. And what's kind of worse about it all is that there is absolutely no plan as to what to do about it. Simply put, there is just no money. There's just no money in the banks. It's really that simple. Uh, most of it is either like you know in pockets as all as always, or has basically been siphoned out of uh, um, like uh, taken out of the country essentially. And I was just reading now that this is this risk taking like over economies of regional governments as well. Like lots of. Uh, uh, people tend not to know this or forget this, maybe, but a lot of the Syrian regime's money is also in Lebanon, and that's putting aside the kind of the like the even the Kurdistan regional government has oil money in Lebanon because mm. you know Lebanon is supposed to be the banking hub of the of the region. That's sort of its thing. That's the and that's part of the crisis because we don't actually produce much else. Yeah, um, 
that is like hearing the amount that she, you know, your relative is making off of three jobs. That is brutal. Um, but maybe give us an idea of the kind of expenditure. How how expensive, how cheap is it to live in, in Lebanon? Just give us an idea of... No, yeah, it's, it is really bad. And I, like, I'm just basically using a easy equivalent to dollars. But in the in the Lebanese pound currency, it fluctuates so much that it's actually very difficult for me to give you a very accurate picture. But one example that I was just reading before we started talking is this kind of this traditional like manushe that we have, which is like, you know, a, a um, like a bread that's very common in Lebanon, especially for breakfast, uh, used to be about a thousand Lebanese pounds or a thousand five hundred Lebanese pounds, a thousand five hundred being one dollar. So one dollar, a bit less than a dollar. And now it's five thousand uh, Lebanese liras. And so most people in Lebanon obviously don't make their salaries in U.S. dollars. Those who do are relatively well off. Uh, but that's that's a really, really tiny minority. Uh, so like in addition to, to you know, the shit that's happening, it's actually also increased that wedge between those who are making money in dollars and those who are making money in Lebanese. Hello? Like their pensions has, have completely been devalued, like they're completely worthless. Um, and as I said, there's really no end in sight. Um, rent really can depend uh, if you're paying rent in dollars, which a lot of landowners are asking, of course, uh, because it benefits them in this case to be paid in US dollars. Well, if your salary is in Lebanese liras, you know, uh, there isn't much you can do other than maybe borrow, maybe uh, move out. A lot of people have just moved out, gone back to maybe their place of origins or where their family's from, like, it's really, it's really all in survival mode at this point, to be honest. Jesus. Um, and just so this makes sense as a kind of standalone episode, um, yeah. maybe explain to us, like, how did it actually get to this point? I know that's a big ask, but, you know, how, how did it get so bad? Okay, uh, I'll do my best. Like, a lot of it is, like, financial crap, which I think even bankers don't seem to understand at this point. Yeah. Uh, but like the 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 the, the currency has been like uh, severely de depreciated, largely because Lebanon has, is not able to pay back its debts, and hasn't done anything in terms of restructuring, in terms of reforms or what have you, whichever terms you want to use, that like institutions like the World Bank or the IMF or those guys um, are basically requiring in order to unlock certain amount of money. Now that's as far as the official narrative goes, anyway. Uh, so what gets kind of swept onto the rug is kind of a very, um, I don't know, even, uh, I don't know, <laughs> cliched uh, mafia style run government. You know, this is a government that at the end of the day divides up the resources between themselves and the, the ministries and the cabinets and, you know, who gets to be foreign minister, who gets to be speaker of parliament, who gets to be president. All of these things are basically divided between each other uh, based on the sectarian power sharing agreements that they've already had. And this has roughly been uh, the past three decades. Uh, last time we spoke was end of 2019, as I said, like during the uprising. It is pretty much the exact same problem as back then. Obviously, two major things that have happened since then, I mean, three even, uh, the, the Beirut port explosion, of course, last summer in August. Uh, the global COVID-19 pandemic, that's that's one that, you know, most people would, of course, know about. And even a couple of months ago, there was that Israeli oil spill. And in Lebanon, there's 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 been really no effort to actually clean it up other than a bunch of volunteers trying to do their best. And so it's just been adding and adding and adding, you know. And at this point, I I even personally, as much as I can see in front of me, as, as much as I try and kind of like 
look at ways out or that that sort of um, thing, not to just be all doom and gloom about it. It's just the fact that like for the foreseeable future, these people, these people in power who are basically the exact same men as the last time we spoke, um, they're, they have no plan for this. They absolutely have no plan for this. And if you look at their own statements, I was just reading today, the president, Michel Hon, uh, basically saying like, you know, I was telling my wife that I wish I had inherited my grandfather's whatever grove or something rather than the presidency. As if, as if he's not the one who's there by choice, you know, like these yeah. people, they really see themselves like the way I describe uh, these men, they genuinely see themselves as Lebanon. Like they are the ones who have inherited a, a certain narrative, a certain myth, a certain, you know, hero story. In the case of the president, he was a general during the army. In the case of the Speaker of Parliament, he was basically a warlord during the arm. Sorry, during the the Civil War, I meant. Um, and these people genuinely see themselves as a country. They really, they genuinely do see that. And like Michel Hunt, during the uprising, when we were speaking around the same time, he was the one who said, like, if you don't like it, you can leave. That's what he said. Mm. And that was before things went like to shits. Like that was really before the economy really tanked. That was before the pandemic. Before the you know, before everything that has followed since. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the uprising there, you know, it got really serious for a little bit. Um, what happened? I, I know, it. you know, it's not obviously as raging as it was. We'll get on to the recent clashes, but what happened to it? How did it kind of, you know, stop? Um, largely the pandemic, largely that. Uh, it was in the early days, you know, like the uprising, for those who don't know, started in like October 2019. And by the time the news of the pandemic really started, like, terrifying everyone, which was, what, around January, February 2020, um, that's that kind of coincided with the, the protests having, like, sort of already losing steam. Mm. But, I mean, it, you could have easily argued that it was just a, a, a momentary thing, you know, like, the, it, all protests have ups and downs, uh, depending on the government's crackdowns, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, people have lives to worry about and the economy by then i should say was already starting to to tank so people were just panicking and that affected uh you know it kind of people looked more uh, inwards in many ways just kind of prioritizing immediate survival but it was easy to predict that uh, this was all temporary and at some point especially given that the economy would continue to decline as it has been since then that you will have waves of ups and downs but you know, not a lot of people could have predicted a pandemic, let alone the port explosion. Yeah, no, that is true. Um, recently, there have been some clashes. I saw some photos the other day. Someone had kind of set up like a makeshift checkpoint. There were some flames burning tires. Um, and I've spoken to friends there that said, like, you know, things things are kind of moving a little bit again. Um, you know, how, how how is that going? You think the protests are going to come back? Uh, yeah, yeah, they're definitely going to come back. There, there was, I think, about a month ago now. I'm kind of lost on the timeline, but... Uh, when the currency really, really tanked, there was a day when it went up from like 10,000 Lebanese liras to the dollar to 15,000 in like a few hours or something like this. That's pretty severe. That's um, That symbolized, uh, well, for many people, like another line has been crossed, like, you know, the 10,000 mark or the 15,000 mark or whatever. And that, you know, rather symbolically was very powerful. And it led lots of people to go down to the streets. And indeed, we did have dozens if I, I actually don't know if anyone actually counted the checkpoints it was it was really in the dozens possibly more than a hundred more than that and that was throughout the country uh you had checkpoints in the south in the north in beirut and the mountains and in the in the valley in, in the Ba'a valley um of the car in english in in eastern lebanon uh those were those were everywhere um 
and whether they would happen again, I mean, there's there's like zero doubt about it. There's absolutely no doubt that this is going to happen. There's there's no plan, man. There's absolutely nothing else that can be done at this point other than taking to the streets and forcing them out in one way or another, begging for some kind of intermediary government, which is a pretty tricky thing, by the way. It's one of the weaknesses of the protest movement, I think. Um, but like even like early elections and having to actually compete with the same people who have been winning the same elections because the game is rigged for them. You know, it's it's a pretty, pretty difficult task to deal with the immediacy of, let's say, political organizing, while at the same time being worried about, I mean, put, putting aside even the pandemic, uh, just just being worried about like your salary being worth nothing now and having to think about leaving the, the flat you're in or moving in with someone else. And I, I've lost count of how many people I know that have just, they were in a place and they just decided to leave because there's no point pretending that they can afford the rent. And so they went back to their folks home or they went back to, you know, that sort of thing, basically. But I do think, I do think the protests are going to happen again. It's just inevitable at this point. Yeah. I didn't realize the checkpoints were that widespread, actually. What, what was the purpose of the checkpoints exactly? I know, obviously, you know, there's no militia or anything like that. It's protest movement, but why were they doing it? Um, it's it's more um, like it's just uh, road blocking more than checkpoints. It's just mm. like burning tires and shit. And the idea is to just, uh, I mean, you know, the before, during the initial wave of the uprising, if you want, it was to actually stop the economy uh, because that's the only way that this would hurt them. Uh, but obviously, since then, like the economy has been tanking anyway. So it's not really that. It's just in a sense, like what else can they do? All of the um, all of the actual sites of government, or at least the the main ones, like the one the Parliament Square, which is a literal like square, and so it's it's easy to be guarded around, and the soldiers are there all the time, so it's really difficult to get into. And they've actually walled it off as well. Uh, the Prime Minister's seat, the Serai, uh, the Baabda Palace, so the Presidential Palace, which is not in Beirut, it's near Beirut. Uh, all of these things are heavily, heavily armed and heavily manned, and so it's very difficult for people for protesters to actually get in there. And so the alternative is basically shut things down as much as they can, really. Um, I would honestly describe it as as a cry of desperation more than an organized tactic at this point. Right, just try and disrupt it, like to get some kind of message across, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, I also saw, I think it was, or oh, I don't know, maybe the start of this year, the end of last year, um, there were quite serious clashes between tribal families you know in different parts of lebanon outside of beirut they seem particularly bad what, what was going on with all that yeah it's, it's as you said it was tribal um tribal rivalries uh thankfully they don't happen as much anymore in the country but it does happen especially in the poor areas uh, in the north and in the east uh, i actually can't remember the one you're mentioning specifically where it was but i do believe it was in the north i could be mistaken about that right um, it wasn't anything to do with the protest though no, no, it was, uh, there were, there's a number of them. So it depends which one we're talking about. Uh, it's very common. So putting that one aside, which was more of like an internal matter, there are, the, there's also the fact that the situation that is worsening in general is, you know, is worsening all of these factors at the same time. So if you're already in a desperate situation, then it might be easier for you to be pushed in a certain direction, if you see what I mean. Um, the more important one politically, if you want, is just the fact that um, the the main ruling parties, which are at this point largely like the Free Patriotic Movement, which is the President's Party, the Amal Movement, which is the, the Speaker of Parliament's Party, obviously Hezbollah, and the Future Movement, which is Hariri's Party, haven't basically just like only talking to one another to find a way to make this work for them. 
in terms of the deals that they want. Like, I think if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I honestly, I, I kind of lose track of what the latest deals are because they change it every single day. I was checking just before we, sp we sp uh, spoke just to make sure I'm actually updated since yesterday. Um, but like, you know, one of them wants to have enough uh, MPs in parliament because he wants uh, the veto vote or enough ministers, I mean. And the other one said, no, you can't have that. And so they're fighting it out. And in the meantime, the entire country is essentially collapsing. Uh, my main fear right now is sort of, I don't know if it was with you last time we spoke, but I said, like, I, I am worried about sectarian clashes. Mm. Um, and that's still that's still a reality. The only reason why I think it won't happen anytime soon is that the main sectarian parties are actually the ones that are in government together at this point. Right, but the people, I mean, you know, that could lead to some serious clashes, not the... You know, not that the people are going to turn on each other, but when people don't have food, when they don't have money and they can't get to the government, you know, old rivalries, what have you, it's kind of like, uh, you know, these things flare up. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're seeing them like on a, I think on a class basis, on a regional basis, on a sectarian basis. Uh, it really depends on the day. Uh, the, the main thing that really struck me the, a couple of weeks ago, I think now, um, apologies, I'm pretty bad with timeline. This one is such a fucking blur. But uh, was the, the issues like at the supermarkets, you just have like supermarket riots and people fighting with like the, uh, you know, the, the, the seller, you know, the, the people, the cashiers and people selling the, the vegetables and stuff like that. And you, you do have a number of these. I don't think they're as common as like it just it looks very scary, especially if there's a video and it's easy to kind of, you know, say, well, everything's going to chaos in Lebanon. And I mean, that is the that is a prevailing sentiment. I'm not saying like it's just a media fabrication, mm. but it's it's easy to to forget that at the end of the day, most of the initiatives are popping up, like people just supporting one another, just like mutual aid kind of situations. Those don't get to be filmed most of the time. You know, there isn't much to film there. You're just helping each other out. So I'm just kind of putting that, uh, putting that, uh, putting a pin on that in some ways, just to also highlight that despite the fact that things are are going like to shits, like the situation is is really bad. There's absolutely no de denying about it. Uh, the way people are acting is really uh, changing because now we're in a post-2019 situation, uh, which uh, for me is very different than the pre-2019 situation. We have had crisis before, although nothing of this scale. And when they have happened in the past, like before 2019, I don't remember really seeing that kind of 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 solidarity with one another i mean i wish i would see more of it I'm, i don't want to be too i don't want to sound like everyone is just very nice to one another you know like there are actual problems but I, i'm definitely seeing more of it than i than i you know than i used to see before anyway yeah yeah i, I think the problem is when things are bad isolated incidents end up seeming a lot worse you know what i mean but it's good it's good to hear that people are doing this kind of mutual aid response what what is you know what are people actually doing maybe go into a little bit more detail about that if you can yeah yeah it happens on all levels you know there is the the citizen level and you have people who are not Lebanese of course and they're also working on their side like one 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 organization that I always try and highlight and sort of just like um you know just mention for people because they can donate online if they want it's this Ethiopian uh, organization called Enya Lenya, which is E-G-N-A-L-E-G-N-A. -E um, and they basically work uh, among one another. It's like largely women run and they try and just gather as much food and, you know, <clears throat> sorry, like health products and a number of other stuff that are just urgent necessities. And they distribute them for free to anyone who needs it, prioritizing migrant domestic workers because they are among the, the hardest hit people in the country. Uh, but, you know, in theory, also uh, distributing it to anyone who needs it. 
and that's just one example you know there's really dozens and dozens of these initiatives you have like uh small like you know agricultural or permaculture farms in the north of the country for example distributing things at a, at a lower rate than the official rate which is you know the due to the depreciation of the value it would be in theory more expensive to buy certain produce and so they would actually willingly cut down their own profits essentially to 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 just be nice and because they see how bad the situation is and you have a number of these or they really happen at like very very local levels like most of these places don't have websites you know they just you may have like a photo spread around on social media and it says call this number on whatsapp for example and you just call that number and they tell you well we have olives we have time we have this we have this what do you need will you know it's that kind of situation but it's just happening below the surface most of the time these aren't very you don't have one overarching uh, overarching like uh, organization um, doing all of this it's really just dozens if not hundreds and hundreds of local initiatives that's marvelous and honestly like i find that a lot more uh, organic and realistic you get a lot of these organizations political organizations not just in lebanon anywhere in the world specifically in europe as well and you know it's people trying to say oh with the anarchist mutual aid or with the with the communist you know outreach and it's like actually normal people that are not interested in your theory will just do this anyway you know what i mean i think that's marvelous it's great to hear people are trying to help each other you know um you mentioned hezbollah a minute ago i mean we can't talk about lebanon without talking about hezbollah i've seen some weird kind of thinly veiled threat threats from them it seems what are they saying right now well it's not thinly veiled just that you know they assassinated lukman slim a couple of oh, months shit. ago yeah i forgot about that that was awful uh, uh, maybe Lug talk about that man sorry sure sure lukman slim was a fairly well-known um like activist, archivist, artist, uh, he and his wife, uh, Monica Borgman, uh, started this, uh, you know, NGO, civil society initiative, whatever you want to call it, called UMAM, which focused, uh, like one of the things that they did uh, was a documentary on the 1982 Sabra and Shatila massacre. And they did a number of these on the, either the massacres in Lebanon or the detainees in Syria, uh, Lebanese and Syrian detainees in Syria. Lots of people tend to forget that many Lebanese are also detained in Syria and Palestinians for that matter. Um, and so he was very well known for being both uh, a member of the Shia community, living in Dahiye, which is, of course, politically dominated by Hezbollah, while being uh, openly anti-Hezbollah. And he would be one of those that Hezbollah would smear and call like uh, embassy Shias, which is a term that many people don't know. Uh, which basically means like, you know, you're, you're not really a Shia, you're paid by the foreign embassies. That's really what it means. Um, and he was assassinated uh, on the six-month uh, commemoration, as it happened, of the Beirut blast. It's easy to remember, 4th of February, um, with like a few bullets uh, to his back and his head, I think, in, in southern Lebanon. His phone had, uh, uh, Monica, his wife, had tweeted the, the night before that Lokman disappeared in the south. We don't know what's happening. And then they found his phone like the morning and about like, I don't know, an hour uh, later, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, they found they found the body. Um, and this was um, uh, very clearly Hezbollah. Like, this is not just me because I, I really hate them saying so. I mean, uh, Nasrallah's own son tweeted it, uh, saying yeah, like some people don't deserve to whatever it was, like basically mocking it uh, before deleting it like five minutes later and then deleting his entire account. Um, Hezbollah has had been uh, just... Uh, just putting posters and you know uh, throwing 
there, you, you just have these banners in front of Lukman Slim's house uh, saying like, you know, uh, he who criticizes Nasrallah and, you know, stuff like that, just like openly, openly threatening him. And he himself had published a number of statements like in the, in the months even before his assassination saying that if I'm ever assassinated, I am blaming Hassan Nasrallah and Nabi Hibiri, Nabi Hibiri being the leader of Amal. Um, and his sister said that this is Hezbollah. Their mom, his mom said that this is Hezbollah. I, I don't know anyone who's, who's not saying that this is Hezbollah. You know, this is, um, it doesn't get more, more, uh, more obvious than that. So yeah, the threats have been getting more severe. Uh, they have shown their teeth, if you want uh, to use that metaphor. I have myself basically decided to go in exile since Lokman Slim's assassination. And it's just a reality now. It's just one ad added component to the endless list of difficulties and challenges that are that are facing the, the, the you know people in Lebanon. I will say though, like um, it's not a clear cut. Like so, okay, let me let me put it differently. I don't want to just um, say that they have all the power and that therefore nothing can be done because I feel like saying that actually benefits them. Mm. And so I will like emphasize the fact that they are losing a lot of the narrative that they used to rely on. Hezbollah was for a very long time up until essentially the, the intervention and the invasion in Syria in 2012, 2013, when they announced it, um, had a kind of like a hegemonic hold over large parts of the country, largely the Shia, Shia, Shia majority ones. Um, but, you know, long story short, I'm not going to get into that too much. Maybe, maybe we can, if you want. Um, but they have been losing that since around 2013, because in 2013, for the first time that they have ever experienced, they had to start justifying themselves because it wasn't as clear cut for even their supporters as to why Hezbollah men were dying in Syria compared to, you know, they were dying resisting Israel. That's a much easier narrative in Lebanon right. compared to uh, they were dying for one of the two uh, military occupiers of Lebanon or former military occupiers of Lebanon. Uh, in, in defense of a regime that is deeply, deeply unpopular in Lebanon, even among supporters, let's say, of, of that uh, alliance, like either the Hezbollah or their, or their party, um, sorry, or their allies, mm. like the Free Patriotic Movement or the Amal Movement. It's one thing to sort of have the cynical, quote-unquote, anti-imperialists having these geopolitical maneuvers, but it's another to actually, like, lose relatives for a regime that no one really likes. And they have been losing that that battle for some time. And in at the end of like in October 2019, during the uprisings, we did see a lot of protests in the south and in in the east, especially in in Dahi is more difficult because that's where their their military intelligence especially are. But you've just been seeing this more and more, and even that more recently, we've been seeing it as well with the recent flare-ups as well, with people like being interviewed on television saying like very respectfully and this is what the, these are the nuances that people lose i think like they wouldn't necessarily insult uh, hassan nasrallah directly that that's still very taboo with a lot of people mm. but they would say things that before they didn't really dare saying like you know they would say things like you promised us that we wouldn't go hungry and we're going hungry you know they, they would start saying these things and hezbollah has no plan for this has absolutely not a single plan as to do what to do about this crisis and so they are losing this kind of narrative and i would like to i, I mean i hope i did it but I, I wanted to also emphasize that yeah why are they though why is this happening for them because previously you know they would do the things where they would feed the poor people you know to get 
whatever to make people like them and get support in the neighborhoods. Why is it now they're not able to do that? Because surely they're not short of money. Or is it just Syria? Like Syria has fucked them. Yeah, it's Syria, it's yeah. Iraq. Uh, the uprising in Iraq happened at okay. the same time as in Lebanon. Um, even in Iran proper, you know, Iran going through its, its many crises. Um, it's just, it's very difficult for Nasrallah to sort of... Um, uh, sell this kind of confidence that he used to before like during the actual uprising in in october or maybe early november 2019 he literally went on television said like basically if even if lebanon collapses you will still be covered like you will still have your salaries mm. and so i think a lot of people miss that and like what that said to me and i mean i think rightly so i, mean, I think this has been like proven since then is that he started or like hezbollah in general started feeling the need to actually remind their own supporters that even if things are getting bad, uh, we will try and take care of you. But, you know, they had no plan as to what to do about a pandemic. I mean, they were even partly blamed for the pandemic in Lebanon just because a lot of the early cases came from Iran. As you know, Iran went through a pretty, pretty severe uh, COVID crisis, uh, crisis at the time in early 2020. I mean, rightly or wrongly, I mean, I don't think it was 100% just Iran. There were also Italian tourists and shit, but... Whatever, like that was part of the, that was part of the stuff that they were being blamed. And suddenly, like, what can they do about it? They have no actual plan as to what to, what to, um, how to counter this. Like, they have no health experts, you know, like, this is not their thing. They are a militia at the end of the day. And their own ministers, like the minister of, I hope I'm, I'm, hope, I hope I'm not getting these specific ministries wrong because they change all the fucking time. But the, I think the Minister of Health was, is, was or is a Hezbollah sub, uh, minister of or Amal, if not Hezbollah, then their ally. And, you know, the person was partying in the bar with like a 200 men carrying him and stuff in the middle of confine of, of like social distancing measures and all of that. Like all, none of this looks good, <laughs> you know, like none of this looks good. And the fact that the, when the port explosion happened some like fingers were starting to be pointed, if not at them directly, but at least indirectly at them. Not that they were the ones that caused it. We know that it was an accident, but no one fully understands why these chemicals were there in the first place. And then we had some investigations that started popping up because of course, no official investigation is going to lead anywhere, but some journalists started digging up and there are some, some suspicions. I'm going I'm to be objective and say that this hasn't been proven. But some suspicions at least linking indirectly the Assad regime or like some businessmen linked to Russia and the Assad regime. And then the entire story, like they have nothing to do about, like they have nothing to respond to. People tend to forget maybe that Nasrallah's first thing that he said after the port explosion is to say that Hezbollah doesn't know anything about the port of Beirut and that we know the port of Haifa more than we know the port of Beirut. I mean, even during the worst moment of Lebanese history that we can even think of, the only thing they can think about is talk about Israel. Yeah. Like at yeah. some at some point, at some point, this shit just doesn't work anymore. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. That is interesting because that's basically their power base, right? To just constantly say it's Israel, it's Israel. But it sounds to me like you were saying even Hezbollah supporters, not just the youth in Beirut, but like, you know, nationwide Hezbollah supporters. It sounds like they're kind of, I don't know, they're tired of their shit, would you say? Uh, I mean, I never know if it's a majority. It's not like mm. they do these polls, you know, but yeah. it's definitely way more than before. And those are the ones that you would actually see on the streets. And the nuances is what matters here, because mo most of the time they wouldn't necessarily, at least not publicly, insult like Hassan Nasrallah himself. But they will say things like, I support the resistance, but 
you know, they would have, they would say these things. Like, I support the movement broadly defined, but I don't support the specific party. I don't support the specific ministers, the specific MPs. And it's that kind of internal dissent, if you want, that for Hezbollah is so, so much worse than anything that someone like me can say. Like, it doesn't matter what I say really to them. I've been anti them for a long time, and it's not, it's not that big of a, of a deal. Someone who's more important, and hence why they killed him off, is, is Lukman Slim, someone from within the community who was openly pro-Palestine, openly anti-Assad, openly anti-Hezbollah. And Hezbollah doesn't like that combination. You know, they need people who are pro-Assad and maybe call themselves pro-Palestine and, of course, pro-Hezbollah. They can't have all of the anti-authoritarian nuances at the same time. You have to choose. And this is how they've been doing it so far. But I personally, I've been saying this for, I think, a couple of years now. I've been, I've been even writing essays about it. I genuinely think that they are in a very tough spot. And more importantly, I mean, they've been in tough spots before. But more importantly, they just don't know what to do about it right now. Because the threat is internal. It's structural. It's long-term. <laughs> it's boring. It's like structural reforms and getting rid of sectarianism and corruption and, you know, what does a militia know what to do about this? You know, like this is just not their thing. And so unfortunately, what this has meant for the Lebanese state, for the Lebanese people, or for people in Lebanon, it's not just the Lebanese, but it's meant that Hezbollah especially has been the primary defender, the primary guardian of this extremely corrupt status quo. They are the main reason why Hariri is back. They are the main reason why, like, they are the ones that did not want to get rid of him in the first place, where on the streets he was being called by name to, you know, to remove him. And they are the reason why all of this current coalition even exists in the first place. Not just them, of course. Amal and the Free Patriotic Movement are pretty big deals. But they are the strongest one. And so it is fair to point it at them as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be crude about this, but it sounds to me like what they need is a war. Like, that's what is a worry to me. When I listen to you say this, I think, well, you know, whilst the country is in a very unstable situation, surely it would in some ways benefit Hezbollah to, to almost go to war. Because, you know, I know that the people would be pretty, you know, pissed off, obviously. But at the same time, we do know that when wars happen, things start getting conflated. And before you know it, people start going to whoever's the strongest and supporting them again. Do you think that's a danger or am I just being dramatic? Um, no, it is. It is. Absolutely, it is. Uh, I've been kind of just focusing on that rather obsessively, actually even mm -hmm. following like developments in Israel just to see if there's anything from their side that might actually trigger stuff. Uh, on their side, it doesn't seem like there's any kind of immediate priority, at least not for now. And on the, on the Hezbollah side for now, it doesn't seem like this is something that they would like to engage in, largely because, A, I don't think they are as powerful as they think they are. Or at least as much as they as they showed they are they are very experienced don't get me wrong but like israel is a different level here um but like even putting that aside even if we're talking about a 2008 scenario when parts of mount lebanon because the then uh march 14 which is the uh, the other coalition they are march 8 so the march 14 coalition uh like confiscated their telecommunication network uh, because they said, like that coalition said, that it was being controlled by Iran or that like Iran had access to Lebanon that wasn't permitted by Lebanon. And Nasrallah declared that a, an act of war against Lebanon and uh, just took over parts of Beirut and parts of Mount Lebanon in like a matter of four or five days. 
uh, where on the other side you had militias from the other parties, but they are just not as organized. And so one of the one of the I, I I may have mentioned this on this podcast as well the other time, but one of the reasons why I don't think that there will be an all-out civil war, at least not anytime soon, as far as I can tell, is that you don't really have anything on the other side that can rival what Hezbollah already has. They yeah. just sort of just have the hegemony on this. And so what, what is the thing that can trigger something like that? It's very difficult. I mean, we had the largest non-nuclear explosion in modern history, and that didn't trigger it. So I don't think that there will be something that is that grandiose that can rival even what happened in August. Yeah. Um, what about uh, clashes between groups, you know, sectarian clashes, like you said, not not saying like civil war versus Hezbollah, but what about other sectarian groups that might start, you know, deciding, right, OK, we might as well fight each other now because, you know, the less money people have, the less food people have, they're going to start turning inwards to their own communities. You know what I mean? And if someone tries to take whatever from whatever this person, like I can just see it happening. You know, I'm not trying to be doomerish, but it just seems so possible right now. It is. It is. Um, so two things that I think are important. One, like the thing I just mentioned, that Hezbollah is just significantly stronger than the others. Like there's just absolutely no comparison in terms of the just the, the military strength that they have compared to any of the other uh, militias that exist, uh, even possibly even putting them combined, like even assuming that all of them unite, which they will never do. Um, but like that, that's one thing. The other thing is that since October 2019, the, the, the lens, if you want, of popular protest hasn't that hasn't been that much against other regions or other sects you do have that especially with the more hardcore uh, members of these sectarian political parties hezbollah the future movement um or even people who are not like technically members of the future movement but they sort of see hezbollah as the main threat you know etc etc but it's not happening anytime soon for two reasons i mean besides so maybe three reasons so besides what i just mentioned but currently, the leaders of these political parties are actually trying to work with one another. So you have Hariri and Nabi Hibiri, so Amal and the Future Movement, uh, actually trying to kind of work together against Hariri and Hez- uh, sorry against On and Hezbollah. So I'm I'm sorry I'm throwing so many names, but uh, basically all I'm trying to say, and this might change, you know, if if you release this in two months, this is gonna be it might change by then. But. Um, they are too busy kind of focusing on one another and they are the ones that really control the, the base, at least the most zealot form of the base. Mm. I don't see the base sort of going against orders. I don't see them really kind of doing whatever the fuck they wanted just because they hate, Sun- they hate Sunnis or Shias or Christians. It's not that that big of a, of a driving factor in itself. But what might... Um, create that kind of tension is largely around the question of Hezbollah's weapons. Like that for me is something that is more likely than say a Sunni person saying something bad about Shias. Like that's just not that common. It's just not something that most people even really think about. You don't really have that, that big of a, of a root, uh, or if, like the fundamentalists don't have that much of a root in Lebanon. There are parts of the North and part of the East that have that, but I really don't see that like escalating on anything on a, on a nationwide level. But what we might have is the extremely sensitive topic of Hezbollah's weapons, which many people in Lebanon, rightly in my view, even if they may have uh, their like wrong kind of motivation, like they just belong to another sectarian party. But on this specific issue, it is a real problem, not just because they are armed, but because they clearly don't want to be regulated, they don't want to follow any rules, they don't want to be part of any kind of 
you know, over some kind of civilian infrastructure looking over them. They don't want, <coughs> sorry, they don't, <coughs> ah, my bad. It's fine. Uh, they don't want any of that because their priority is geopolitical. Their priority is regional. Their priority is Iran, not Lebanon. And I do think many, many more people are starting to see that. And th this is part of what, what I've been saying, that I think they're in a pretty tough spot in that, that sense. And they haven't really been in that spot ever in their own history. So they don't actually have any precedent on what to do with this. Yeah, um, it's all new for everybody, I guess. Even the kind of conflict aspect, like you just said, it's not quite as it was. I know it's impossible to say, but you've been looking at this very closely. You obviously understand it all, or at least as well as anyone can. Um, where do you see this heading? Like, it just sounds to me like it's going from bad to worse. And listening to you now and, you know, speaking to a few people there, it's just like, what, this can't be sustained. Like, how is, what's going to happen? Is another country going to step in? Like, you know, what, what is going to happen, do you think? I, I don't see any other countries stepping in just because, like, the, this, the place, I mean, the, just the location of Lebanon is extremely sensitive. You cannot yeah, have yeah. any, you know, the, our only two neighbors are Israel and Syria. Mm. Um, so that's not going to happen in that sense. You did have some kind of like foreign politicking, you know, with Macron visiting and the, the Gulf saying stuff and Iran saying stuff. But for the most part, honestly, uh, like geopolitically speaking, and many Lebanese don't like to admit that, I think, but it's just not that important, you know, geopolitically, it just isn't. Yeah. Like what matters is Egypt and Israel, obviously, and, you know, Syria for the wrong reasons and Turkey and the Gulf, you know, Iran, obviously, uh, you know, it's, it's just not Lebanon. It really isn't Lebanon. Um, so what might happen is a, I mean, what definitely will happen for the foreseeable future, at least the short term future is a slow to quick decline in living standards. So what we're already seeing right now, more of that, like really more of that. There is no upper ceiling. Uh, the currency is what people sort of follow, obviously, because that's where their, you know, that's what their savings are. That's their salary. That's the really basic monthly stuff. Lebanon has no universal healthcare. There is no rent protection. There is no social services. None of that is a thing. So what is possible is sort of the kind of the stuff that we've been seeing in the past few weeks. So to give one example. Uh, Hariri donated from his own money of his party's money I don't know but uh, he bought a bunch of vaccines and he donated them to one of the regions in the north where he wants the votes and so that's sort of what they're thinking is basically the same as always the question for me is next year was supposed to have elections I don't know if they will actually happen because they have been postponed in the past. Uh, people tend to forget that the recent election was the first one in almost a decade because the parliament kept on illegally, I should say, uh, postponing their, their own term uh, three or four times, I think. Uh, so if assuming these elections do happen, I do think a lot more people will now look at alternatives to vote for. The question is whether these alternatives will actually pop up or not. I think probably just because I see the anger kind of manifesting itself in that direction. But it doesn't mean that they will manage to get the, the, the turnout that they need. Because, I mean, I don't know how, how much in the DSs you want to get into this, but it's not just a matter of numbers. Like, things are divided in sectarian quotas, in regional quotas. Uh, you don't actually vote where you live. Uh, for example, I, I vote legally where my family is technically originally from and not where my family actually lives. And so you don't actually vote for your own area, for your own councillor. You know, you don't do that. You you vote uh, for for your place of origins, 
And that's one of why? the main reasons why. What's Sorry? the reason behind? What is the reason behind that? Well, it's sectarianism. It's just that. It's yeah. it's uh, wow. a certain region has X percentage of Christians or X percentage of Shias and Sunnis. Uh, that's what it is on the books. That may not be the case in reality. That's the thing. Uh, in reality, some areas are more diverse than what's on the books, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And so if they recognize that, well, no, actually, we have uh, X percent more of this sect or that sect, they will have to then recalculate the number of seats in parliament and that sort of thing. And it's it's the same reason why Lebanon hasn't had a census in its entire history, like since the 1930s, because you, as soon as you bring up the question of how many Christians actually are in Lebanon, how many Shias actually are in Lebanon, that uh, Sunni Jews, etc. That's extremely sensitive because that is equal to what are the these political leaders, what kind of power they are entitled to. And so if the you know the free patriotic movement, which is Christian dominated, says stuff like, no, we're you know, we are 40% or whatever number they give, therefore this justifies that we get this and we get that. It's for the same reason that. Up until recently, the number of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon was always like bloated because they would always like the polit Lebanese politicians would always say things like we cannot absorb. They would always use the number of half a million or something. But the actual the only census that was done, which was, I think, like a couple of years ago, showed that I think a little over 200,000 or something like this. People can look that up. That was a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a pretty big difference. And the reason why they would stick to the half a million is that most Palestinians are Sunnis. And so this is something that's very easy for especially the sectarian Christians to use as a card, you know, as a political card. And, you know, if Hariri, who is a Sunni himself, says like, no, there should be more uh, rights for them because, you know, from his perspective, that means more Sunni votes. Then you'll have the Christians that say, no, we don't want that because then, you know, we will be losing votes. It, it's a game. You know, it's a, at the end of the day, that's, that's what a power sharing agreement, uh, emphasis on the agreement that's what it implies. Uh, they have to agree on this. <laughs> and that's how it works. Man, what, what an unbelievably complicated situation to end up with a political crisis in. You know what I mean? Like the situation itself is already a crisis, you know, trying to understand it. And now for all this to happen, man, like it just doesn't sound good. Um, are people leaving the country at the moment? Has it got to that stage where people are just like, right, I'm out of here? Yeah. I mean, due to the pandemic, it's not happening. But yeah. Uh, you have lots of waves of people leaving. Um, uh, a prime destination is Canada due to the immigration system there. Uh, my sister is applying to Canada. My uh, like a number of my best friends are applying to Canada. Uh, lots of folks are um, a number of people who were accepted in their for their PhDs, for example, that I know their masters or or even their undergrads uh, for 2020. They most of them postponed it to 2021 uh, due to the pandemic because in 2020 most of the borders shut down. Um, so those folks will be leaving, you know, when when fall semester starts, which is what, in a few months, you know, six months or so, uh, you're going to have a lot of essentially brain drains happening. And then it depends on the countries on the receiving end, whether they are being quote unquote smart about this or not. I don't think they are, to be honest. But I mean, you will have these waves of, of immigration happening. And unfortunately, they join like a very long history of, of Lebanese immigration. That's why our diaspora is so massive. Yeah. Uh, there's like an estimated 20 million Lebanese outside of Lebanon and four to five million inside of Lebanon. And so an entire um, part of the economy of Lebanon, other than its corrupt financial system, the reason why Lebanon is called the Switzerland of the Middle East isn't its pretty mountains, you know, it's its banking secrecy laws. 
um, the, the, or was called that. Um, it was just that and the remittances that people would send back, uh, the diaspora would send back to their family and stuff, and the tourism. So you don't have tourism, you don't have the remittances due to the banking crisis, and the banking crisis itself, therefore you don't have the banking sector either. And Lebanon doesn't produce produce very very little else. Like they don't they don't even like even the cows are imported. You know they they don't um, in Lebanon there's really very very little that's produced because of the sectarian system. At the end of the day, it is it's like a pie. You know they want to share it in a certain way. And so anything that is remotely public, anything that is about healthcare, anything that a pandemic. You know, all of these things, uh, Lebanon is structurally, structurally as of now, incapable and unwilling in many ways. The government is unwilling and incapable of doing it, of doing anything about it. It's just not part of their card. They just don't know what to do about it. They haven't launched any investigations after the, the blast. Even the army stopped looking for the, the, the potentially missing, you know, the people who were injured and potentially dead. They stopped looking for them after two or three days. And I can name so many of, the, of these different examples. The, the oil spill, the Israeli oil spill that I mentioned that happened in February, it's still there. It's still in the south of Lebanon. And something like 70, I think, 80% people can, can uh, look that up. But something like, you know, a majority of the Lebanese coast was affected by it. And most of it is already polluted. So we are talking like in political science term. I hate to put that kind of that hat on. But this is this is a failed state. Like it's it's all of the definitions of failed state. Now the question is what comes next, and that for me is the big question. That that is something that I can kind of have some scenarios. I you know I mentioned a few of them, mm. but other than that, it's me making educated guesses. You know, like it is getting worse, and you will have a massive, massive by Lebanese standards uh, wave of emigration. I think at this point it's inevitable. I think it's going to happen. Uh, and in the meantime, you have these largely, you know, all men, all in the 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, dividing the pie between one another and just talking to one another, really. If there is a kind of, I really hate saying this, I wish it was not the case, but any kind of international pressure, like it's really insane that at one point the World Bank was looking good in comparison to the Lebanese government. Mm. But that's just that's just how things are. <laughs> you know, that's just how it is. You have militias and, you know, warlords and oligarchs on one side. And you have very boring bureaucrats and financiers on the other. Uh, some people are gonna choose the latter, you know. Like there isn't much else that can be offered at this point, at least not on the on the international scene. It sounds to me like it's just ripe for a revolution. You know what I mean? Like not that it should or shouldn't. It just sounds like I can't see it happening any other way. Like what else can what else can people sustain? You know, it just seems too yeah. too far that's, gone now. That's what I'm. You know in small capacity, but that's what I'm, I'm trying to help folks who are staying back in Lebanon. And even those who are not, there is a pretty significant role and like, um, yeah, a role that the diaspora, I think, would be playing, especially if the crackdown gets severe in Lebanon, which is not impossible. It hasn't happened on any kind of regional scale. There's no comparison really in Lebanon to, say, Iraq. Um, but it's not impossible either. Like, it's really not. Uh, one of the reasons, I think I mentioned it last time I was around, on your podcast is that you know they, they just don't there's no one militia that controls all of lebanon so it's difficult to do for them to do what the militias in iraq do, do in, in southern iraq especially right but it might be a it might be a people's revolution you know instead whereas you know like a, a more organic revolution i guess it sounds like where people just go right we're storming the place you know everybody's gone you know i mean the, the security forces have been killing anyone that kind of tries to get close though right 
not not many killed, not many murders. Um, you have a lot, a lot of uh, tortures and beatings and like, right, okay, just, and definitely they do that a lot. Especially there was a, there's a good report. Um, I want to say in Human Rights Watch, it might have been Amnesty. I'm sorry, I confuse the two sometimes, but one of the two um, that showed the, the 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 tortures that were happening in Tripoli, for example, in the north. They tend to be, I also, I think I mentioned this the last time, they tend to be the first people victimized by the government because they are largely poor, they're largely Sunni, it's easy to just call them terrorists and ISIS and whatever, like they, the government has been doing this for a long time. And so it's easy for them to sort of focus on them and there tends to be little sympathy from the rest of Lebanon when that happens. But that was pre-2019, pre-October 2019. This has been more difficult for them to do since then to call them ISIS, to call them, you know, all sort of slurs mm. or Al-Qaeda, uh, it hasn't really been working in, in the sense that, you know, most people in Lebanon still go down to the streets and support Tripoli, for example, when the crackdowns were happening uh, over a year ago now. I think more of that is likely to happen. I really think that. I think you're going to see a lot of disorganized uh, violence, uh, which is understandable, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, I think maybe if I'm being slightly more optimistic, you will start seeing organized violence. And by violence, I just mean basically fighting back. Yeah, um, that might happen. I do think that we saw in the recent protests, we saw people using some of the tactics from like Hong Kong and stuff that uh, when the initial wave, like initial protests were happening, you did have some folks doing it, but not as many as one would think. So since then, people have learned essentially and there's also just the factor of just like historical precedence at some precedence. I mean, at some point, things get bad enough that, uh, of course, as you said, like people just can't take it anymore. And this is indeed ripe for any kind of revolution. My main fear is as soon as it gets to the stage where it's like it crosses a violent line, uh, the people that are already very well organized for violence are those already in government. Right. That's sort of my main fear. Yeah. So I would hope, like, you know, if I was speaking to everyone, everyone was listening to me, I would hope that we get to a point where the violence is mixed with even more nonviolent tactic. Like there is a role for violence, don't get me wrong. Uh, but it's done in a more strategic way, in a more long-term thinking way, which is very difficult to do when you're dealing with everything. So what might happen, like this is a scenario, this is me kind of predicting, uh, is the situation sort of stabilizes itself for a certain period of time. Let's say enough vaccines have been uh, administered. Let's say the economy is not getting any better, but not getting significantly worse either. Like it's just been stabilized. This is when I think people will have more time to organize in a way that I don't think the Lebanese government is really ready to deal with. And that's very important to emphasize that they have no plan. The Lebanese government has no plan. And it's unlike in, in, in let's say, well, unlike in, in Syria, that's an obvious difference that you don't have one regime controlling everything. And But even unlike in Iraq, where you have multiple militias that are very strong, in Lebanon, you only have one that is very strong. And I don't see it being able to sort of exert the kind of power and, and terror, essentially, that, you know, Hashd al-Shabi, the popular mobilization front in Iraq, is able to, to, to exert. And so I do think that if we're looking at it from this kind of like strategic point of view, if you want, I don't see that the government is able to really do more than what it is currently doing. And if they do escalate, I do, I think it's fair to predict 
that people will become more and more violent towards them. And I think that this is something that the government is paranoid about for the simple reason that they don't have a total control over the security forces and the army due to, among other reasons, the presence of Hezbollah. That is very interesting. Let's hope it doesn't get to that, but I, you know, it does sound like it's going to uh, head that way. Um, in the meantime, how are people doing just day to day? Like, how are they doing? I don't mean obviously financially, we know everybody's fucked, but like, what are the spirits like of the people there? Oh man, it's, it's depressing. It's really, yeah. really bad. Uh, it really is. Like, there's no other way of putting it. Uh, if you look at just have, only if you stay to the English op-eds, it's pretty much the same in Arabic. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're all about like, you know, titles like Exodus and my own was broken. That was the title of an essay. Right. Um, it's all about that. It's like desperation, trying to leave, uh, terrified for their own kids due to the explosion and not. Uh, sorry, I should also say, like, I don't know if anyone knows this, but they had found even more chemicals about a month ago. And <clears throat> yeah, so there was an yeah, there was an issue with like a German company that was mm. supposed to remove them, but the government wasn't paying them. And so in the end, they did that. But that, you know, that was another trigger, essentially, for people who lived through the explosion, which is pretty much most people because, you know, Beirut has like a million people living there or in in and around Beirut. Um, So in terms of the spirits, uh, they're down there. There's no doubt about it. There is definitely a sense of solidarity. Uh, As I said, the mutual aid initiatives. I mean, I'm calling them mutual aid. People don't even call them that. They're just calling, like, helping each other out, really. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's on a neighborhood level, it's on a community level, it's on a regional level sometimes, definitely Beirut has a number of them, for example, but not just, uh, but even like, uh, I would say even cross regionally, there's quite a lot of stuff, you know, because the agricultural fields, for example, they're not in Beirut, you know, they're in the North and in the East. Mm. So you have a lot of the permaculture stuff and a lot of the, you know, activists working and they have a feel and they're, you know, whatever those people end up communicating with people in the south or people in, in Beirut or in the mountains or what have you. And so you do have a bit of that. So it's not it's not like everyone is just walking with doom and gloom on their face, but everyone is extremely anxious. Um, uh, there's so many reports of like self-medication and drugs and, uh, you know, just people helping, uh, doing what they have to do really to kind of cope with what's happening. Um, and this, this, yeah, this is happening. That's probably not going to change anytime soon. I mean, they cope however they can cope. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I don't have that answer, but the, the mood is pretty much like, it's just bad. There's no, there's no other way of putting it. Yeah, no, no, it's understandable. Um, it's a real shame. It's such a beautiful country with such great people, man. I love it there. It's a real shame it's happening like this. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about, Joe, before we, uh, before we wrap this one up? Um, very quickly to just say that. I mentioned it briefly. Uh, I would be amiss not to do it again, but sure. <clears throat> uh, most people suffering are from all walks of life. Like even what, what you would call before the middle classes, uh, they're sort of just disappearing. Uh, you know, the relatives I mentioned with the masters making 200 bucks a month, you know, three jobs and stuff like that's just indicative. A, she has three jobs. You know, <laughs> most people don't have three jobs. Um, it's just indicative of where things are heading. But it is also important to just emphasize that in addition to all of this, which is already bad enough, you have a lot of people in specific circumstances that are even more stuck than the average Lebanese citizen is. Just today, like I think like an hour before we started talking, I saw this report on one of the on one of the uh, outlets, Lorient Le Jour, uh, that showed that there was a Palestinian man who hanged himself in prison in Rumi prison. 
um, which is where I uh, next to where I grew up. Rumi prison is a notoriously bad place. It's like probably the, the worst place in Lebanon. Uh-huh. And so you have all of these situations. The prisoners in Lebanon are fucked. They're getting absolutely no kind of decent treatment whatsoever, let alone any kind of actual accountability or justice. Most of these are, you know, are just waiting there for their trials to actually happen. And they can, <clears throat> sorry, they can wait for years and years and years and not have any kind of, of, of uh, resolution there. And that's <clears throat> putting aside the refugees, Syrians and Palestinians, I mentioned, but Syrian refugees, you had a number of Syrian who um, you know, lit themselves on fire, essentially, uh, in the past year uh, out of desperation. You had a number of these cases, not just Syrians, some Lebanese as well. Uh, and that's putting aside the migrant domestic workers that uh, are stuck in a country with no good visa due to the kafala system. Their governments are not helping them. Like the Ethiopian government, as you know very well, uh, has other priorities that have nothing to do with the migrants uh, that live abroad. Uh, um, they they are they are being screwed over with a salary that even before the crisis was was the equivalent of like a hundred dollars a month, and now it's like what twenty thirty dollars a month. And so obviously they had they use it all to survive, and so it defeats the purpose of sending money back home. And those are the those are the folks that are sort of um, a significant percentage of the country are these folks. You know, like Lebanon has a million refugees, five or so million citizens, maybe three hundred thousand or so migrant domestic workers. So we're not talking about a very very small minority. It's a significant percentage of the country that's. We speak about the poverty level. I mean, most of the time they don't even count in those statistics. You know, like they're below the poverty level. There's just there's no way for them to be above it. Yeah. So it's just to emphasize that it's multidimensional. You know, and the 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 Enya Lenya group that I mentioned, just to re-mention it again, uh, are one of many. You have the anti-racism movement, uh, which um, runs the migrant community centers that I used to volunteer in. And other such groups, it's not just migrants, of course, but they are just the ones I like to highlight. Um, they are doing the sort of work that no one else really is doing. And that's why I always encourage anyone to support if they can afford to do these things, honestly, because that's 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 one way, you know, that with the, the money that you would you know send is actually useful. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's terrible, man. Um, thank you very much for coming on, explaining it all again. I know it's miserable, but, you know, I think the people, everybody needs to know. Um, thanks again for that, man. Where can people keep up to date with your work? I know you've got podcasts, you've got, I think you've got Substack now as well. Like, direct everybody to your stuff. Yeah, I don't have Substack, but I have a podcast. Uh, yeah, it's called uh, The Fire oh, Times. Sorry. Um, <laughs> where I got that from. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, my podcast is The Fire These Times. I do have a newsletter that's probably what you're thinking of. Yeah. Uh, it's just on, it's on my blog, like Hamas for Thought. Uh, that used to be my blog, and now it's just a newsletter, a monthly one. I do update on Lebanon, but not just. It's just like rants and reflections that I don't want to waste uh, on social media. And so I put it in a monthly newsletter. Um, I am on Twitter. Uh, It's just just my first name and last name. I try not to be that active on Twitter anymore, to be honest. It's very depressing. But I am there. Uh, And when things are happening in Lebanon, I tend to update there as well. So, you know, that's that's one way people can stay in touch if they want. Thank you very much, mate. Appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me again. Thanks. That was writer and activist Joey Ayub talking to us about the sad situation in Lebanon and how it could very easily boil over into violence. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Good luck to everybody in Lebanon. I know the situation is bad right now. I've been talking to a few friends out there. It's really, really not good. Uh, If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. 
You can get bonus episodes, narrated articles, access to the community discord, episodes before everybody else, early access to documentaries, your name in the credits of our documentaries or on the podcast episodes. There's all sorts there. Patreon.com slash popular front or if you just want to make some kind of one-time donation you can go to popularfront.co slash support thank you to our sponsors this episode was sponsored by oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa they're an independent coffee business selling only fair trade products See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. Tell them that Popular Front sent you, you might get a discount. The episode was also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. One in South, one in West. Find them on socials at Grind Core House. If you pop into one of their shops, remember, tell them Popular Front sent you. You might get a free coffee, something like that. The episode was also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflicts, propaganda from around the world. You can buy prints at propagandopolis.com. Use promo code popularfront 10 for 10% off. Find us on social media. On Instagram, it is at popular.front, youtube.com slash popularfront, Twitter, it's at popularfrontco, and the website is www.popularfront.co. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home, and the outro was by Sam Black. You can listen to his music at samblackpf.com. Thank you very much to our high tier Patreons. They are Laura, RX, A Nickel, Manny, Travis Lieberman, Sky Alexander, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, MJ, K Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, C O'Donnell, Adam H, Ryan Barbadillo, Larson8669, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Jacob, Michael O'Connor, Taylor Kidd, Zach Picard, Todd Cravens, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Cully, Michael Akakan, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, Helen DeGenerate. Helen DeGenerate, I hope you hear this episode. Good luck with everything. I did get your message, mate. Um, I messaged you back, but I don't know if you saw it. Good luck to Helen DeGenerate. Uh, Mike Barone, Ben Crock, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Jojo Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Nawaiz, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochran, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, 
Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Sebastian, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvenek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormack from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Moritz Zumbul. Thank you all very much. Remember, if you want to support Popular Front, go to patreon.com slash popular front.